All right, today is the big day. Huge thanks to everybody that filled out the 2019 YMYW podcast survey. And now it's time to actually choose our winner. So, Alan, do you know what this piece of paper is that I hold in my hand? I do not because it's folded over and I can't see it. And you've just walked in and I, I haven't even talked to you about that, this. That's correct. I'm, I'm clueless. All right, so what I want you to do is choose a number between 1 and 100. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. 47. 47. All right. Our winner of the $100 Amazon gift card is Paul Moore. So just take a look at that, number 47, and confirm that for me. Number 47? Uh, that's, oh, I just have an email address. Yep. Paul Morris. Mor- there <laughs> <whatever>. you go. <laughs> anyway, that's right. Oh, that's so exciting. And thanks, you guys, for listening to the show. And thanks for responding to the survey because it really helps us out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, Ellen, the most popular topic that we discuss on this show is tax optimization. Oh, I like that. <laughs> keep, keep those comments coming. Yeah, exactly. So if you still have questions, comments, all you have to do is go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You can scroll down the page to where it says Ask Joe and Al on air and send in all that stuff and you'll get talked about on the podcast at the very least, right? That's, well, yeah, there's no avoiding that. All right, so now let's get down to business. The yield curve has inverted, and in the past, that has often led to recession. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Pure Financial Advisors Executive Vice President and Director of Research, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, discusses the current state of the markets and the possibility of recession. And he helps Joe and Big Al answer some of your questions from that podcast survey. Are structured notes ever a good product? How can you make the most of small retirement contributions? Plus, how do you grow a portfolio? When should you rebalance? Why should you invest in international stocks? And what's a safe withdrawal rate? I'm producer Andy Last. Joe Anderson, CFP, will be joining us shortly. And here with Big Al Clopine, CPA, is Brian Perry, CFP, CFA. Brian, there's uh, there's a lot of concern about the market, what happened this last week. So that's why we thought we'd have you, our director of research, on first thing, kind of try to nip this in the bud. So first of all, how you doing? Doing awesome. Good. Better good. than the market. Better than the market. Okay. Well, let's talk about that because this wasn't uh, maybe the best week in the market. And so what, what are some of the reasons we had such big declines? Well, well I think for starters, let's put everything into context, right? Because Wednesday was the largest decline or of the year and the fourth largest decline in history as measured by points on the Dow Jones, so down 800 points. Sounds like a big number, but remember, as the Dow has gone up in value over time, points tend to lose their meaning. So 800 points is a very large move, but only about 2.5%. Got it. Well, and, and I think it's interesting to note that uh, the market, even with this latest down, is quite a bit higher than it was in June. Yeah, that's right. And we're still in the middle of a very good year. Yeah. So far, it's for stocks. And again, who knows what happens tomorrow or next week. But. Yeah, I think that's another missed point. If you go back to the beginning of the year, people may not recall, but we had a pretty good decline in December. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our starting point in January was relatively low. We're, we're quite a bit better than that, even, even with the most recent declines. Yeah, and human nature being what it is, a lot of people right now see market volatility. We've had several big declines in the last couple of weeks, and a lot of them face the temptation to get out of the market. And yet you only have to flash back to, as you referenced, December, where a lot of people, again, were probably tempted to get out. And then we subsequently saw mid-double-digit returns from um, December through the middle of this year. So thinking about this last week, uh, certainly one of the things that's come up in the press uh, and has become a reality is this whole thing about an inverted yield curve. 
So what, what does that mean, first of all, and, and uh, should we be concerned about it? Yeah, and so what's interesting about financial markets is that periodically something that is generally esoteric comes to the forefront and becomes front-page news of like the USA Today and stuff like that. And an inverted yield curve just refers to the fact that usually when you lend the government or a corporation money, the longer you lend it for, the higher the return you get. And people, usually if you're going to buy a three-month bond, you don't get as much return as if you buy a 30-year bond. That's the normal shape of the yield curve. And an inverted yield curve refers to a phenomenon when shorter-term yields or returns are higher than longer-term. So in other words, right now, you can get more money lending for 30 days than you can for, let's say, 10 years. And that's relatively unusual. Yeah, so it is unusual because typically, I mean, if you, if you think about it, the, the longer you're going to have your money tied up, you would expect to get a better rate of return. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just logical. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world, right? I mean, there's more risk and there's more opportunity cost. And generally, if higher yields are found in shorter-term lending than in longer-term lending, what that means is that people think rates are going lower. In other words, they think that, hey, by lending money next year, I'm going to get lower returns than I would get lending money today. And so future rates are lower. What that means is they think rates are going down. Usually that means they think the economy is going to slow. So what does that mean for the stock market and how we think about investing? Yeah, well, really, it goes back to the economy, because ultimately, the stock market is a function of corporate profits. And if you look historically, inverted yield curves have often led to bear, or, uh, to recessions. Okay. Now, there's a question, open question, whether it's a cause and effect thing or it's simply a sign that we're going into a recession, right? But historically, the co- most common way to measure an inverted yield curve is the three-month treasury to the 10-year treasury. There, we've actually been inverted for some time now, for the better part of this year. More recently, the two-year treasury increased in yield to the point where it yielded more than the 10-year treasury. That's happened five times since the 1970s. Subsequent to each of those five inversions, we've entered into a recession. But the most important point is that the difference in time between when the yield curve inverted and when we actually went into a recession, on average, was almost two years. So, in, in other words, this, uh, so we, we have this inverted yield curve, and, and I, what happened this last week was the two-year Treasury is, is now a lower rate than the 10-year. That's, that's what changed this last week. It, it spooked the market, and a lot of things, I think, are spooking the market right now. But uh, perhaps uh, this will lead to a recession, perhaps not, hard to, hard to know. But uh, it doesn't necessarily, even if it does lead to a recession, it doesn't necessarily happen right away. Correct, yeah. And again, the future is unknowable, but if you look at past history, there's been a several-year lag on average. And the other thing is that stocks, on average, have been up about 15% in in between the time when the yield curve inverts and when we enter into recession. So getting out immediately hasn't necessarily been the answer in the past. Going forward, you know, who knows? But time has proven again and again that markets are very, very difficult to get right with precise forecasting. So I've got this article that uh, was uh, written by Eugene Fama and Kenneth French, two very smart individuals on investing. And essentially, they were trying to to tie inverted yield curves to uh, expected stock returns and, and basically and trying, to, trying to tie these inverted yield curves with, with much lower returns or even negative returns. And interestingly, what they found, and they went back, uh, I think, as far as 1975, and there were six uh, different uh, uh, yield, inverted yield curves during that point. What they found was that uh, there really is no evidence that uh, there's there's a negative stock premium, and meaning that there's no evidence that you're better off going right into T-bills and then and getting out of stocks. Yeah, and I think let's maybe 
the yield curve is a pretty esoteric topic, but pulling it out of the weeds, the reason people worry about the inverted yield curve is they worry about the economy going into recession. And there's a lot of reasons, as you mentioned, to worry about the economy, right? Whether it's trade wars with the U.S. and China or declining interest rates in general are a sign that people think the economy is going to slow. But let's not lose sight of another reason that interest rates could be falling, and that's that internationally yields are very low. A lot of bonds in Europe and other places in the world actually have negative returns. And that's a slightly mind-boggling concept. But basically, if you buy government bonds in Europe, you have to pay the governments for the privilege of owning those bonds. You get no return. You actually have to pay money. right? And so given the choice between paying somebody to hold your money, essentially, or getting 1% or 2%, 3%, whatever it is in the United States, the U.S. suddenly looks like a pretty appealing option. Therefore, there is a fair amount of money flowing into U.S. bonds, which is one of the reasons that yields are falling, which is prompting then the inverted yield curve. So to me, it's, it's, it's hard to understand how there would be negative interest. I mean, why wouldn't you just invest in like a, like a, a CD in the United States? Well, if you're in the United States, you probably would, right? But if you're an international investor, if you live in, let's say, Germany or something like that, you have to worry about exchange rates, too. And, you know, so it becomes a function of what return can you get in, let's say, Germany versus what can you get in the United States. But you have to take into account the fact that you have to convert your euros into dollars and then back again. And without getting too far down the rabbit hole, usually those exchange rates are adjusted for the relative differentials and yields. So what happens is that investors in places like Europe don't really have a whole lot of choices. And in fact, some of the large banks in Europe are now charging people to hold their money. So if you want to keep money at, let's say, a UBS or something like that, and you live in Europe, you may have to pay for your savings account. Right. Yeah. And it's something we have not seen in the U.S. No. And you know, frankly, I hope that we don't. Because if you think about it, uh, people have been worried about rising interest rates in the United States for the better part of 10 years. The question of, what if bond rates uh, rise? Am I going to lose all my money? And the reality is, high interest rates are the best thing that can happen to people because the higher rates they get, the higher the returns from their overall portfolio. So to me, in a lot of ways, the risk is not higher interest rates in the U.S., it's lower interest rates. So I have another question for you. I don't want this to be too much of a, of a hot potato, but uh, this, is a, this is a headline that I saw on Thursday morning. It says, Trump, Navarro, Peter Navarro, are the only officials in the White House blaming the Fed for volatility, sources say. So we know that Trump came out and said that it was the, the Fed chairman Powell's fault for all this volatility. What, what do you make of that comment? You know, I'm not going to comment on anything that um, some politicians say, because God only knows. But, but I think that the truth of the matter is, is that in a lot of ways, Trump has backed the Fed into a corner where they may have wanted to cut rates sooner than they did to support the economy. But given his pressure on them, they had to prove their independence by keeping rates high and continuing to increase rates. So I think in a lot of ways, some of that some of that uh, badgering is actually counterproductive. Yeah, I, I, I suspect you're right. Check out Brian's video on the yield curve inversion and the likelihood of recession in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. It's actually an excerpt from a more in-depth video called Preparing for a Bear Market, a comprehensive guide to bear market history, predictions, and investing. And if you want a deeper dive, that's in the show notes, too, along with our recent podcast episode with Liz Ann Saunders from Schwab, where she talks about how best to invest in the face of a recession. Click the link in the description of this episode in your podcast app to go straight to the podcast show notes. You'll see all these resources in the episode transcript. Yes, we have transcripts. 
Now, we're going to keep Brian around a little bit longer to answer some of the questions you've submitted in the podcast survey. If you've got questions, compliments, complaints, or stories, go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Scroll down and click Ask Joe and Al on air. This one came from William. William asked, are structured notes ever a good product or should they be avoided? So I'll give a quick answer and then a longer answer. The quick answer is no, they are never a good product, and yes, they should be avoided. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Next question. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I mean, let's put it this way. Um, Charles Schwab, and, and I haven't checked this in a year or two, but as of a couple years ago, and they're a very large firm, would not sell structured products to their clients. And, and I think that that says a lot because Schwab is a financial supermarket that will sell almost anything to their clients. Um, and the reason that they want it is because they tend to be – extremely complicated, difficult to comprehend and understand, and then to have high fees built in. So I, I, re I remember hearing about them first time maybe about 10 years ago, and on the surface, I, they sounded all right. Why, why don't you talk about what, how they're sold and what they are, and, and, and maybe a little bit deeper as to why to avoid them? Yeah, so basically a structured product is usually either a bond or a CD, so it's some sort of fixed income underlying vehicle and then they'll attach derivatives to it. And the derivatives will be linked to some sort of indexes. And so a common one might track the performance of the S&P 500, um, but a lot of times they get more complicated than that. So the return of one of these things could be linked to, let's say, the performance of the S&P 500 minus the performance of some European stock index. So you're betting basically on the differential between those two. Um, we were talking on the podcast today about the inverted yield curve. Those are pretty common where the return might be some multiple of the difference in the yield curve. And they tend to be targeted towards whatever is in the news and whatever's popular. And the problem is, is that the formulas look attractive because a lot of times there's a teaser rate where the first couple years might have a very high coupon where, hey, you'll get X percent for the first couple years, then it'll be linked to these indexes. And then when you start to look at the indexes, a lot of times the return that you're hoping for is extremely difficult to receive in anything other than historically abnormal market environments. You also have problems around illiquidity. So a lot of times these things are issued in very small issue sizes. And so if you want to go sell it, you're going to take oftentimes a very significant haircut in trying to sell it. A lot of times they have pretty significant markups when they're sold initially at new issue. And then there's also credit risk. And so you don't think about it because you're thinking it's the S&P 500, but they're usually issued by a bank or some sort of financial institution. And you're now a creditor of that institution, just like you would be if you own a bond. There's nothing wrong with that, but you just need to be comfortable and know that you do have some sort of credit risk outstanding. It's common that these will be linked to maybe, let's say, the U.S. Treasury yields. You're not a creditor of the U.S. Treasury where there's no credit risk. You're a creditor of Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or whatever bank issued them. So is, is there any good points? In my honest opinion, no. Um, I will admit and rather ashamed, and probably somebody should be sticking a uh, pin in me in my Ouija doll, is that back in the day in the 90s, I actually structured and traded some of these. Um, in general, there were very high commissions that we would put in them. They were overly complicated, and a lot of times they don't perform the way people would hope them to because they'll have caps and floors that really limit the upside on them. In general, if people are trying to achieve some sort of diversified portfolio and different exposures, they can do it with more traditional assets because when you look at complicated products, Wall Street's never really made something more complicated to benefit the consumer. It's generally just a way to hide additional fees. So we can, uh, we can say that you saw the light, huh? I saw the light and I came to the fiduciary side of the business. All right, Andy, next question. Next question, this one comes from Joseph. No location given, I don't think it's Joe Anderson. 
because it says I'm 35 years old, married, and I work for UPS. As a part-timer, I do take advantage of the 401k Roth, contributing 9% weekly, which overall is up 11.11%. It is a small account, still growing, but many others ask the same thing. How can we maximize our accounts with such small funds being contributed? I allow Morningstar to manage my account, but always wonder if they are allocating in the scenario of a recession or following the herd chasing the big highs of the market. Just looking to be responsible in the long term. Maybe I'm overreacting. Thanks. All right, Brian. So we've got we have uh, Joseph that uh, has a UPS account, uh, and it's he's got 401k dollars, nine percent of his pay. Uh, we don't know how much is in the account, but he tells us it's a smaller account, which which is fine, and he wants to do the right thing investment wise. And I would say my first response is it doesn't really matter whether it's a large account or a small account. The same fundamentals apply. And I think one of the first things, Joseph, you need to do is take a look at what the, what the funds are ultimately for. Uh, in other words, if you have a pension plan or you have Social Security, how much more do you need from your portfolio to be able to cover your expenses? And that's going to help you descend. And when do you need that portfolio? Maybe it's next year. Maybe it's 10 years from now. Maybe it's 30 years from now. I don't really know. But uh, at any rate, that's going to help you to decide. Now, you, you do say that you're 35 years old, so which will generally mean that you've got a ways until retirement. So you probably want to have uh, a little bit more aggressive portfolio than someone maybe that's 65 that has less time uh, to, to kind of have the ups and downs of the market. But how, what would you add to that, Brian? Yeah, I mean, for starters, I'd agree with you 100% that just because it's not a large amount, or regardless of the size of the amount, that shouldn't change somebody's investment approach. I think a common mistake is that people invest differently when it's not what they consider a large sum, and maybe they take more risks. And so a lot of times, the smaller the portfolio we see, the more aggressively it's avoided. And maybe that's because people feel like they need to get very high returns to meet their financial goals, and they're kind of swinging for the fences. Um, in this case, right, if, if Joseph is 35 years old, he's got time on his side, and that's his best friend. So the idea of uh, finding some sort of reasonable asset allocation makes a lot of sense. As far as positioning for a recession, I mean, I think that, yeah, at some point we're going to have a recession, and then he talks about the big highs of the market, and at some point we're going to have big highs, and we're going to have both. And if he's 35 over the next 30 years of investing for retirement, let's say, he's going to see multiple recessions and multiple great bull markets. And I think it's building a portfolio that will get him the returns he needs to meet his financial goal with a level of risk where he's not going to panic during those bear markets or those recessions. And I think that's the key because I think what happens, like let's say he he did a fairly aggressive portfolio, and by that I mean mostly stocks and maybe even certain kinds of stocks that tend to have higher rates of return but are more volatile, like small companies, like value companies, like emerging markets, for example. And let's say his portfolio goes down a lot, and then five years later it's 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 back to what it was, and it's like, well, this doesn't work. And then you get out, and unfortunately we see that all the time. Now. What does happen over the long term is if you stick with that sort of approach, you'll do rather well. But not everyone can stay in their seat. Well, and he has the big benefit, Joseph does, of contributing on an ongoing basis. And so this may sound strange and it's a difficult concept to, to really grasp onto, but a bear market is the best thing that could happen to Joseph. Since he's still contributing and he's still buying in, a bear market will allow him to dollar cost average. He should actually hope stocks go down for the next 10 years. That's going to leave him with more wealth at retirement than a bull market would, as strange as that may sound. Um, so I think one of the big dangers he would face is that he might be too conservative. Sounds like he's a little bit nervous, and he's a little bit 
worried about the state of the market. And I think the big danger for him, obviously being too aggressive might be a danger, but being too conservative is a danger. Yeah, absolutely. So would you have him uh, favor equities? Right, and would you have have them favor smaller companies and value at least at least a little bit, maybe not all in, but a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly it's it's individual depending on somebody's risk tolerance. But at thirty five, and again, assuming these are retirement funds, um, having a proportion, probably more than half, in equities makes sense if you look at a twenty to thirty year time horizon. And the research shows that over time, smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies. You know, additional research value companies outperform growth. And frankly, he probably wants global diversification too, where things like emerging markets will provide higher returns, a more volatile ride, but higher returns across time. Yeah, it's interesting when you consider emerging markets. And, and when you look back almost any 20-year period, it's at the top or near the top of, of best returns. But it was a crazy ride to get there. So when we look at emerging markets, it's kind of like, yeah, let's, let's have some in the portfolio, but not too much that's, that's going to upset you. We're just getting started answering your money questions. There were a lot of them in the podcast survey. So if we don't get to yours today, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast because we will get to everyone's questions in upcoming episodes. Joe and Big Al are about to answer a question about safe withdrawal rates. And from the survey, I know that a bunch of you are interested not only in that, but also in FIRE, the Financial Independence Retire Early Movement. Next week on the show, we're putting them together when Joe and Big Al meet Big Earn. That's Karsten Yeska, PhD, CFA from EarlyRetirementNow.com. Big Earn is doing the heavy lifting when it comes to researching safe withdrawal rates in early retirement. Subscribe and listen for free at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. We got uh, Cynthia from Houston. H-Town. 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 Yeah. Hi. I'm a faithful listener of your awesome podcast for the past several years. Wow. Well, thank you, That's Cynthia. That's nice. So here's Cynthia's question. Uh, what is a recommended withdrawal rate in a retirement for a portfolio that is composed of the following? So she's got 40% CDs money market accounts earning uh, 2 2.5%. 40% in a bound stock funds with some bond exposure, 20% in slightly higher, uh, riskier growth funds. And my point is, is I don't feel like the 4% withdrawal rate will be appropriate when a major chunk of the portfolio is earning less than 4%. Thank goodness we don't plan to withdraw more than 2% per year, but what do you guys think? Thanks a big bunch. Uh, Cynthia, I think that is very... Well thought out, and one of the more articulate questions. Um, you can tell she's a listener. Yes. Because I don't think most people even know what the hell 4% rule is. <laughs> That's probably true. And the 4% rule, in my opinion, is only really should be used to help you to, to determine how much money that you should have. It's not like pull 4% out of your portfolio every year, right? Because it's going to be a little bit different depending on the market, depending on your life, and, and so on and so forth. But I think... We were talking earlier that people retire with $500,000 that are pulling out $60,000 a year. So for them, they can just kind of back into the number to say, all right, you don't want to pull out any more than four. So that helps on the accumulation side, I think. So if I'm striving towards a goal and say, I want to pull out $40,000 per year for the rest of my life, how much money roughly should I have in a portfolio? Well, it's a million bucks. But then once you retire and start pulling dollars out, I think the 4% rule doesn't work. Yeah, because there's so many different variables. And I would say the 4% rule, which came around 
30 years ago, yeah, would you I'm say, not, give, or, give or take, maybe knows? 40. Yeah. Bill Bingen in yeah. the probably 70s? That's, yeah, that's right. And so that that was basically, the, the, here was the thinking, was a 65-year-old retires and is going to live 20 years, maybe 25, right? And has a 60% stock portfolio, 40% bond portfolio. And the analysis that, uh, that was done basically said you have a pretty good probability that you're not going to run out of money. But that that's... So <laughs> there's a lot of things there. Now, certainly, Cynthia, when you have a portfolio that's not a 60-40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, so you've got more safety, which is totally appropriate because you only need to pull out 2% per year. But so based upon your investments is going to somewhat dictate how much you pull out. Uh, but it's a whole lot of things, too, like longevity. Some people may live into their 90s. Other people have health issues in their 60s. And they could probably pull out more potentially if they only need the money for ten or fifteen years. But there, there's, I think, I think what Joe you're saying is that this is really something you kind of want to look at year in year out. It's not a hard and fast rule, and that's when you're in retirement. You, you you're pulling out a certain amount of assets, and then you got to figure out is this is this working? Am I starting to deplete? My, my assets, and if so, you're pulling out too much, or maybe you don't have the right investments, or any of number of things. Well, I mean, I, I mean the math is right. She's like, well, if I pull out four, and I'm earning two, two. and a half. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, wouldn't you say it this way, that if your rate of return from your portfolio, expected rate of return plus inflation? Well, Bill Bangin said, all right, well, uh, 60-40 split, hypothetically, will... You know, they ran thousands and thousands of iterations of what the stock yeah. market did, right? Yeah. And so they did Monte Carlo simulations of several different iterations of when markets were good, when markets were bad, and when you pulled money out when markets were really bad, and when you pulled money out when markets were good. They did all sorts of these, you know, uh, simulations of withdrawals. And right. they looked at if I pulled out 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, what was my probability of success? That money lasts me 30 years. And so 6% was probably the target expected rate of return, right? So you pull four, it does six, the 2% combated inflation, a little yeah, bit of yeah, tax, yeah. right? So I, I said that backwards. So your rate of return minus inflation might be an approximation of what you should pull out, right? what you can pull out. Sure. And so inflation right now is fairly low, but as that goes up, right? So maybe she can pull out 2% or, oh, of course you can pull out 2% for the next probably five, 10 years. But then as inflation continues to creep up on you, depends on where's the money at. Is it in a taxable account? Is it in a Roth account? Is it in a tax-deferred account? How much are you actually pulling out? Because this could be $5 million. Well, 2% of $5 million is a pretty big number, which could cause a lot of tax. Or it could be you know, a million dollars, and she's pulling $20,000 out a year. So, I mean, there's all sorts of different variables there. Yeah. But I think she's right on. It's like, well, yeah, if I got a conservative portfolio, I don't want to be pulling out 4%. Yeah, and if they cut, I got to pull out two, but two percent might be high as well. Right. If if she's earning two and a half. Right. Right. So, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah exactly. So um, I was going to say it, something it, else. But it also well, I'll, you also touched on the sequence of returns, which, in other words, you may have very good years after you retire, in which case you can probably pull out more. You may have very bad years. Maybe you have three or four years of bad returns just right after you retire. And in that case, if you're pulling out 4%, the whole thing may blow up. Right. right. So, so you just have to, that's why we're saying it's, 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 a, it's kind of a rule of thumb to figure out how much to save in the first place. I think that's right. But then on a year-in, year-out basis, then you've got to look at the, 
the market conditions, your own situation, where what your investments are, where they're located. Are they all in retirement accounts? You're paying higher taxes. All of these things factor into really what you can successfully pull out of your portfolio. Yeah. And it might be different year in, year out. Yeah, it probably will. And because, I don't know, she might want to travel one year. Next year, she doesn't want to travel. You know, stay right. in H-Town. Maybe yeah. she comes to San Diego, visit us. Maybe. Right? So th- when you're retired, it's Saturday every day. You get a lot of time off. And so sometimes people spend a little bit more money than they anticipated. Yeah. So she's thinking 2%. I don't know if she's retired or not, but if you know she's pulling out 2% now, next year she could pull out 5 and that might just be totally fine, totally suitable. Who cares? Yeah, might be. Right? So it's just looking at what your goals are and what are you trying to accomplish. The 4% rule is really just a rule of thumb. Anytime you look at rules of thumb, you know, it's a good gauge, but you want to probably dive in a little bit deeper just to get very specific on, you know, what you can and cannot do. All right. We got Nancy from Chula Vista. She writes in. She goes, how can retirees with pensions uh, best allocate their stock and bond mutual funds to grow yet not be too risky? As a newly retired teacher with a pension of $300 a month, with a pension and $300 a month Social Security, how can I stop myself from checking my IRA daily and watching it go up and down by $500 some days? This is a zero-cost mutual fund, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Money is not needed right now, but maybe in the future or as a legacy. It's about 90 grand. Okay, Nancy, it doesn't sound like she needs the money. No, not really. Okay, throw your computer out your window. <laughs> But if you can't help yourself, then switch your allocation. Why don't you go 40% stocks and 60% bonds? Or why don't you go 30% stocks? So it's not going to be so volatile. And you won't have to worry about it so much. And you'll still get some growth, just not as much. She wants a legacy. I know. 60-40 is fine. But she can't, right? ha- she can't handle the, the ups and downs. So that's what I would do. I would flop it. I would go 40% stocks, 60% bonds. Done. <laughs> I don't know. But she's still going to look at the thing daily. She needs to meditate. She maybe do some yoga, right? Yeah, but then it's only going to go down three hundred dollars. Find find out, you know, find a <laughs> find a hobby. That's a problem with retirees, right? I know they start paying attention to their money, time, right? and then they're taking a look at that, and they're they're logging on every day, and then they freak out, and then they're not happy. You know, you don't need the money. It looks like you know you retired. You're a right. teacher, right? Like. Robbie was a teacher for four years, yeah. and you, Nancy, you probably taught for thirty years. Right. God bless you. Yeah. You deserve to go out and have some fun. Spend that ninety grand. That's what I would do. Put it in cash and spend it. <laughs> there you go. But she wants <laughs> go growth. on a trip. She wants some growth because she might want it for later or legacy. Well, you know what? Take the grandkids on a trip and give that legacy to them while you're living. Yeah. Enjoy it. Right. That's what I would do, Nancy. Not me. I would go forty percent stocks, sixty percent bonds. <laughs> But you don't have a pension, Alan. I know. I'm, I'm imagining that. <laughs> that would be nice. Yes. Uh, well, so, all right. I'm imagining if I had a pension and got $300 a month on Social Security. Well, because I, she's wept out. That's it, why it's only 300 bucks. I understand. But I assume the pension is decent and because she, she's living off of that and she doesn't need the money. Yeah. So I would just go more conservative in my growth. That way I'd get some growth, but it would not uh, be as volatile. And eventually I would try to train myself not to look at this daily. 
If you're watching your portfolio like a hawk every day, maybe don't check out this week's episode of YMYWTV. It's called Threats to Your Retirement Income. Joe calls this one the doom and gloom episode of YMYW. Then again, it does come with a Retirement Income Strategies free companion white paper with ideas to help you keep your head above water in retirement. Both the doom and gloom and the strategies are in the podcast show notes, you know, along with the episode transcript. Click the link in the episode description in your podcast app, and you're there. Got DJ from Oregon. He's like, this is quickly becoming my favorite podcast. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. DJ, yes. I like the styles, so don't tone it. Don't do anything. Don't Don't tone it down. Don't tone it down or change. All right. You got it, buddy. I like that the topic spread over several areas, taxes, investment, retirement, estate, Real, Real estate. estate, yep. Okay, all right. <laughs> and not just focused on retirement. Is it best to reallocate on a schedule like every two years or just do it whenever your diversification percentages exceed a certain threshold? Uh, is it best to reallocate on a schedule? So he's talking about rebalancing, I yes, believe. Yes, that's, so, that's what I get to. Okay, so reallocate would be probably changing everything, rebalancing would be keeping the same investments in the overall portfolio, but then buying and selling is how I would see that. Yeah, it could be. But we'll, we'll say rebalancing. Yeah, we'll say rebalancing. Yeah, so so do you rebalance every two years and you let it go? Or do you rebalance, maybe you check it more often and when you get within certain designated percentages of variance? In other words, if you're trying to have 10% of a certain asset class and it goes up to 12%, do you sell some and get back to 10? Or if it goes down to 8, do you buy some to get back to 10? So, DJ, here, I'm going to give you the real skinny here on all of this. Um, rebalancing is key. It's important. Um, if you did it every two years, uh, is it going to be a big difference if you did it by bands or if you did it by quarterly or if you did it annually? Uh, probably not. Um, the, the key component, I believe, of rebalancing is to keep your – risk and expected return parameters in check. So you have a, a, like we were just talking about before, you have a disciplined process That's right. of making sure that you're buying losers and selling winners. It's just the exact opposite of what we want to do. We want to continue to buy the winners because those are going up, and we want to continue to sell the losers because those are going down. Like international stocks, man, they're going down. They're they're terrible, and let's just get the hell out of them and buy all USA. I mean, how many times have we heard that over the last couple of years? Quite a few. Right, but if you go back to 2000 through 2010, and if you just own USA, you're down 10% for 10 years. You had a million bucks. 10 years later, you got 900 grand. And international stocks were up 150 150 to 200. 200%. Yeah. So it's like, okay, if hindsight's always 2020 should have been a better idea just to stay in U.S. over the past 10 years? Of course. But we don't know what's going to happen over the next 10 years. So going back to DJ. Yes. Should he rebalance? I don't know. How much money do you got, DJ? If you got 50 grand, don't worry about it. If you got 5 million, then you probably want to have a little bit more you know, sophisticated um, strategy or process. But I think sometimes rebalancing is a little bit overblown. Some planning firms like ours, we look at this stuff every day. We do. Right? We, we, and if it's out of balance by the band, oh, we're all over it. If we waited two months and get, didn't get it done, it wouldn't mean squat, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, it's like maybe 10, 20 basis points. Yeah. I, I For the average American, rebalancing is important. 
But, you know, you listen to your buddy Rick, you know, and he's like, oh, you got to do it by bands, and this is what our firm does, and blah, 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 come invest with us. Yes. But, I don't know, for DJ in Oregon chilling, I, I don't well, think it's here, that here, important. Here, here's what I like about what uh, you said, DJ, is that you're thinking about rebalancing it all. Because, Joe, how many times have we met with people that, oh, I got this allocation my 401k 30 years ago, never looked at it. Right. And it's like, well, maybe you're better off particularly I would say as you get closer to retirement because when you get closer to retirement what tends to happen if you don't rebalance is you get more and more stock allocation because stocks tend to grow more than bonds and now all of a sudden you're taking more risk and then the day after you retire there's a market correction and you have way too much in the stock market and you're thinking can I get my old job back? Sure. But let me, I'll argue with that. That person that had that same allocation, didn't touch it, didn't look at it, didn't you know put bands on it, rebalance it, and start messing around with it, right? So you got those two people. Yeah. 30 years later, someone that never looked at it versus the guy that's jacking around with it every day. Yeah. Who's got more money after 30 years? The guy that didn't touch it. Yes! I do know that. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just that you were taking more risk. And and see, I guess I guess my point, and I'm coming full circle, is that the, the, the longer you have till retirement, you're actually better off just going all in equities and don't worry about it. Just just let it be. Right. As much as you can Total stomach. U.S. stock market fund, total yeah. international fund, boom, 60-40, both of that, all equities, let yeah. her go. But as you get close to retirement, this becomes much more critical. You have to have a certain um, amount of safety because you're going to be drawing from those portfolios. So, But it, it all depends. I mean, I don't know how old DJ is. True. Now, speaking of international, we do have a question on that as well. <laughs> International? Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, okay, where's that? Let's that was you. JT in San Diego. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Go he for said, it. I'd like a better understanding of international markets in relation to the U.S. markets. Part of my current portfolio includes international slash regional exposure. My view is to stay with U.S. markets and leave out the international slash regional markets since they swing very wide. Swing very wide. <clears throat> Does that mean What? <laughs> is that that mean, means they swing very well. Yes. I mean, does that mean it's more risky? Is that what he's saying? I mean, like the standard he's, deviation I, of international stocks th- are think, higher than... I think he's than, implying they're more volatile, which is not true. It's not true at all. Yeah. Um, maybe over the last couple of years, you might have seen the, the swings going not in the direction where you'd like. So, so the, the truth is that uh, that U.S. stocks versus international, if you just take that as, as your two comparisons, let's just start there, which is kind of what you're asking. There are times when U.S. outperforms international, and there are times when international outperforms U.S. And in fact, if really, if you look at the last almost decade, U.S. stocks have done better than international. But if you look at the decade before that, it was exactly the opposite. So with that logic, is international going to be the place to be through the 2020s? We have no idea. But that's it's why you want to have both, because they both tend to cycle at different times. The, there's a higher expected rate of return right now for international and emerging market stocks than there are in, in U.S. stocks. Because they're lower priced. Right. Exactly. I, when I do you want to buy things, high priced or low? Yeah. Low priced. And so this is recency bias. So we look at our portfolios, we see what is doing well, what has not been doing well, and we want to continue to load up on the things that are doing well. It's a very hard discipline to follow. Right. Right. It's like, well, I don't want any of that. I don't understand international. I mean, if you think of it, you you can't look at just international and U.S. either. That doesn't make a lot of sense. No, there's a lot more categories than that. <laughs> right. You've got to look at big, strong, large companies. Then you look at mid-sized companies. Then you look at small companies. Yeah. That's kind of where you start. So if I look at big, strong, large market capitalization companies in Europe versus U.S., I mean, does... It, are, are, are is one better than the other? No, they're about the same, but they but they do tend. I mean, if you if you look at them as a whole, 
U.S. will outperform sometimes, and international will outperform. And I think sometimes people invest in international as a block because they think it returns better, you know, better investment. But no, it's the same. It's just that they cycle at different times. Now, if you get smaller international and emerging markets, and you compare that to large U.S., then the international over the long term will 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 beat I'll perform just because it's smaller and and more risky and more volatile but yeah I know you definitely want to have both you could you could have had this we could have this conversation three years ago and and uh, and and so we might have said well it's international stocks are due right which is what we're kind of saying right now on the other hand we've had another three great years of US so it's it's why you don't go all in or all out you have a globally diversified portfolio to capture everything right I don't know it's I get it though it's like we, we, we want to buy what we know and what we're comfortable with. Sure. Right? It's like, oh, man, I really don't understand what they're doing over there in Europe. Right. <laughs> it's like that's, you know. that's the same thing we're doing here. I just got, I just got back from Ireland, Scotland. Right. Right. They, they work. They, they have fun. They go to pubs. Yeah. I mean, the emerging markets are something a little bit different, you know? Well, sure, because now you have undeveloped countries right. or underdeveloped countries. Sure. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I don't know. I I think our opinion is to be globally diversified and looking at different factors of size and price of the particular stocks. Yeah, um, region of course is important too. Um, you want to be diversified across all continents and countries. So, um, but now watch in the next ten years when international does well. This is what's going to happen to this gentleman, right? Right. He's like, screw it, I'm out. I'm going to go all in U.S. Right. Okay. And then as soon as he does that, guess what's going to happen to U.S. stocks? It's going to tank. And, and guess what's going to happen to international, international. stocks? It's, it's going to go through the roof. It will happen every time to these people. <laughs> and I feel bad. I, I do too. I get it. It's yeah. like, all right, well, yeah, I, I understand. Look at the track record. Go for it. And other, he's going to do it. And then all of a sudden, as soon as this guy does it, boom, it's going to change on him. But on the other hand, it could take three years for that to happen. That, that's where nobody knows. Right. For more on Pure Financial's investing philosophy, download our newly updated free white paper, Pursuing a Better Investment Experience. Learn the drivers of expected returns, why chasing past performance is a mistake, and how to let the markets work for you. For more guidance, click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for a free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner that can help you figure out if you're on track to accomplish your goals in retirement. And you don't even have to be local to Southern California for that two-meeting assessment. We can even do it via web meeting. Or if you just have a specific question, click Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and send it on in. You might even get a useful answer. Okay, we got one uh, writes in, to be risky. That's the name? Is that what we're just calling this person? That's the first half of their email address because they filled out the podcast survey. What's your to, online name? To be risky was the is the email? Yeah. Like to be risky at gmail.com. It wasn't yeah. Gmail, but yeah. Or something like that. Yep. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry, to be risky. Like do you have a like a social name that's yeah. different from Joe Anderson? Yeah, Buck Naked. <laughs> there you go. So we should, could be reading Buck Naked's question. <laughs> Buck Naked forty five. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> All right, what's the question? Oh, well, no, mine's uh, like Joe Anderson 001. Yeah, I mean, mine's Alan.Clopine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my other one is A. Clopine. Very yeah, I got either Joe Anderson 001 or Anderson J underscore uh, 23. 23. Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. okay. So. All right. Okay. 
<laughs> I kind of like buck naked, though. Yeah, you should change it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I would never respond to it. <laughs> from buck naked. To be risky, I would respond to it. Buck naked, I would delete, delete, delete. Because <laughs> I'd be afraid there'd be some pictures in the body of the email. Oh, my God. When is a good time to invest in tips? Uh, I could have said something else there. Uh, when, when inflation is not on investors' radar or when inflation actually starts to materialize. What were you going to say? I would, tips. <laughs> Treasury inflated protected securities. Just curious. I was going to explain exactly what a tip is. Yeah, what is a tip? <clears throat> it's a Treasury inflated protected securities. Thank you. Um, to be risky. Well, that doesn't sound too risky to me. <laughs> <laughs> to get into some to treasuries. Tips. Well, it's a it's a riskier bond than some. When uh, you say that, no, but bo- bo- yeah, it is because it's it's more subject to inflation. Well, it, it's it, based on the CPI it, index. It, it can go up and down more. Uh, the principal can go up and down more in a tip than in a regular bond, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, it depends on how you buy them. I yeah. mean, it's still going to be guaranteed at maturity. It's a U.S. Treasury. True, but if you had to sell out of it, yeah. Uh, when inflation is not on investors' radar or when inflationary actually starts to materialize. Yeah, well, I, when's the best a, time? I don't know. I have no idea. You're that, not I'm, a CFA? No. I think to be risky is. That's a really good question. You know what I mean? Well, I can tell you our portfolios have tips in them at all times. Right. Because you don't know when inflation is going to hit. So you want to have some upside if, if inflation hits. And, end of story. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> hey, if you've got questions, we got answers. I'm not saying they're good answers, yeah. but we will give you some answers. They'll talk about your question. We'll see you next week. Show's called Your Money Your Well. Stick around for just a bit. we got some great Great derails right after this. And thanks to Brian Perry, CFP, CFA from Pure Financial Advisors for helping us understand the inverted yield curve a little bit better. In your podcast app, click the link in today's episode description to read the transcript of the show, check out a ton of free financial resources, and share and subscribe to the podcast. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Oregon? 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 Yep. Have you ever been to Oregon, Jeff? Um... Yeah, you've been. I know you've been because you went. You flew into Portland and you went to the coast. Yeah, okay. I, I went to. Uh, How did you say it when you were there? How you doing? He did. He What's said, up? He said. He said, "I'm going to Portland." Portland. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, a, and then a beach. Yeah. Well, um, where the hell did I go? What was that beach? It's, it's, it's like the northernmost beach. I forget the name of it in Oregon. Um, Andy can look it up for us. And that's where like they filmed the Goonies. Yeah. Or something, right? They had those yeah. rocks. I remember you saying yeah. that. I think I stayed at this nice little bed and breakfast called Stephanie's. Yeah. My Cannon Beach. Cannon, Cannon yep. Beach. Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah. And my, my parents used to live in Newport, which is about kind of mid-high in the state. I mean, middle of the state, right on the coast. Newport, that, Newport Oregon. Newport, Oregon. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, yeah, Cannon Beach. Went there with um, my ex-girlfriend. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And Was that the... The final blow of that trip? <laughs> no, it's actually okay. It was all right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Oh, that was okay. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, DJ's writing in. Um, I wonder if DJ's a DJ. Wouldn't that be he cool? Is. That would yeah. be badass. Yeah, right, right. I, I'm a DJ. What's your name? DJ. <laughs> that would, that would be hey, cool. Hey, DJ, what do, you, what do you do for a living? I'm a DJ. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, DJ. Well, <laughs> what no, do you do? I, no, I didn't ask your name. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. got a money question. If we got a complaint or a compliment or juicy stories. That is like my least favorite word. That and delicious. Really? Juicy. Juicy. Just you not s- a... You say it a lot, then. Because I'm, I'm reading I, I, it. I wrote oh. it on here not oh, knowing that he it. hates the word juicy. Yeah, because I'm... Wow. have to change. I thought, man, I've heard I'll, a lot of juicy today. Yeah, I'll say it. <laughs> You'll say it just, if it's in uh, front of you. Just juicy. I don't know. It's, oh, it just kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. The word that does that for me is perturbed. Perturbed. But that word is so... I say perturbed? No. I don't think I've ever said that in I my life. I didn't say you did. Oh, I, I thought said you said the, the word. word that does that oh, for I me. Oh, I thought you said the word that I say that does it for you or no. something. Perturbed. Making everything about yourself, Joe. Well, that's what, I'm, that's what I try to do. That's <laughs> I take responsibility <laughs> for you know, it as well. You, you don't even have to say that. We already know that. Perturbed. <laughs> that makes me perturbed. <laughs> Al, do you got a word that you don't like? Uh, no. You love every word. I just, I'm loving, <laughs> loving kind of guy. <laughs> I, I, well, there's a word I don't like, hate. <laughs> Perfect. Oh my that was awesome. <laughs> oh the original God. pacifist. I, I love Alan everything. I love everything. Peace, brother. Oh, we got Peace and love. Ringo Starr. I don't know. Yeah. If you're like Fred Rogers or someone that just smoked a joint. That man should be canonized. I'm, I'm a combo of Fred Rogers and Willie Nelson. He's a stoned Fred Rogers. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a stoned Fred <laughs> Oh, it's, uh, it's more it's, fun. It's Mr. Rogers Dojo, you know. Coming <laughs> I'm going to grow some red-haired ponytails <laughs> like Willie and grow a great beard. <laughs> Play your ukulele? Yes. Oh, sir. that's going to be awesome. Just sing, wear uh, sandals? Blue eyes crying in the rain and Whiskey River <laughs> with my sandals. Yeah. I'm going to get a cowboy hat just for that, too. Yeah. 